Well, hello and welcome to Insight with Political Tools and Beyond the Headlines. Ukraine has amazed the world as it takes on the apparent might of the Russian military. Social media is lit up with images of drone strikes, Russian convoys in disarray and armour laid to waste. But as the war enters a new phase in the East, senior military analysts are saying that Ukraine and its supporters need to prepare for a long conflict. Hopes for Russian military collapse are overblown. We have with us one of the world's leading experts on Russian forces. He's Michael Kaufman, and he works for the Center for Naval Analyses in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome, Michael. Hi. Thanks for uh, having me on your program. Yeah, we're, we're very excited to have you with us. Um, if you follow Twitter, anyone, you'll know that Michael really is regarded as one of the top an analysts out there on the Russian military, and he's very widely respected within the US and the US military community. Um, as Can we give us a quick summary of the situation at the moment in the East? Can you say wh where things are happening? I think some people are going to be familiar with that area, but not so much. And I should say that we've led numerous study tours to Ukraine and also to Russia and the Baltics. And some of our groups have been to Kharkiv, um, Odessa, Dnipro, for example, and, and Kiev. But um, we never got as far as um, Donetsk for, for obvious reasons. But just give us a rough summary of where we are. Okay. So if you kind of imagine the map of Ukraine and you look towards the eastern part where the Donbass regions are, many folks should be familiar with them because the fighting has been there since Russia's original invasion back in 2014. In the northern part of that map by Kharkiv, uh, what you have is first a Ukrainian counteroffensive taking place to displace Russian forces around Kharkiv and to get Russian artillery out of range of the city. And that's been quite successful because the Russian forces there are very sparse and they don't have a lot to defend with. If you go a bit further southeast from Kharkiv towards the northern part of the Donbass, you'll hit a couple of towns there. They're not major cities, but they are cities nonetheless. And there is the thrust of the Russian campaign. And the Russian military had been attempting a sort of double envelopment around the northern part of the Donbass in a way that would separate and cut Ukrainian forces apart into pockets. But the offensive has gone very slowly. Reasons for that being that uh, the Russian military has far fewer forces available after suffering major losses in the first phase of the war. Really, the first three weeks were quite decisive. And uh, they reorganized the forces, but they are prosecuting a rather different campaign, or at least trying to do it differently. They're trying to minimize casualties, leverage firepower. And so the advance is very fitful and uh, they're much more casualty averse in how they're pursuing this part of the effort, understanding they have big limitations in terms of how much of the force is now available for the war in Ukraine. So the way this has gone, I'll just close on this point, is that they've shifted the bulk of the emphasis of the offensive over the last week towards the easternmost part in the region called Luhansk, around the city called Severodonetsk, okay? The double envelopment approach hasn't been very successful, and it looks like they're basically shifting it towards just trying to press Ukrainian forces off of one part of the Donbass, and maybe eventually trying to take the rest of it. So this is going to be an offensive that plays out, I think, over a much longer period of time than people expect, not something that's going to resolve within days or even necessarily within weeks. Okay, I'm going to recap on some of that. And then what I want to come on to is some of the lessons learned, what we've learned about Russia and that first section. 
um, first section of the wall. I've mistakenly managed not to turn my phone off, which is critical. Um, so just, just to repeat what you're saying now, you, you had a sort of like a like a sort of snake's head pincer movement uh, in the east of Ukraine, with a sort of the top of it coming down to this town called Izium. Now there's a lot of sort of focus on that a few weeks back, but you're saying now that shift has gone slightly further south, further east, and that's where the the concentration of forces is, and they're sort of moving slowly with Ukrainians possibly retreating or being pushed back. So. The Russian offensive from Azum hadn't been very successful. And the Ukrainians had launched a counteroffensive there. Now they're getting close enough with artillery to potentially even hit Russian supplies heading to Azum. And the Russian military clearly had shifted forces further east. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to encircle Severodynia. So they're actually trying to create a, a full pocket. And they're doing that by, by pressing towards Ukrainian lines, uh, both directly from the north and also from the Southeast, right? Potentially trying to cut off uh, the entire grouping of Ukrainian forces in uh, the Severodonetsk area. Got it, okay. Uh, I'm gonna draw back from that for a second. And I think it's important for people who are watching here who don't have a military background to sort of recap on some of the things that have been learned since that in initial offensive. I think we all know that um, Russia's calculation about Ukrainian response, the idea that they could just sort of you know, drive along the road to Kiev, bring paratroopers into Hostomol, the airport just north um, of Kiev, um, and then sort of take the capital and then all be over in a few days. We know that plan um, went to pot. But I think what perhaps people know less about is the sort of military analysis of the side of that. And, and that's um, combined arms to start with, and then I think if you drill down into a bit, something you're very good on is about the actual, the way the Russian military is actually structured and talking about infantry. If we keep, keep that second bit for just a moment, can we just talk about the failure to um, link up those different forces? So if you've got um, infantry, you've got you know, armored corps who are combined and you've got air force and the idea that all these things should happen together. Yeah, sure. So. There were a couple of big problems in the, the Russian effort, and many of them have to do with the plan. I would say that this is still more of a bad plan rather than a bad army, but there's truth to both arguments. It's just a question of how you weigh those impressions of, of uh, the war thus far. So as you rightfully mentioned in the first part of the war, the political assumption that this is a quick, quick regime change operation, right, rather than an actual combined arms offensive played a significant role. And because of that, they tended to keep the operation covert from their own troops. And they didn't tell their own troops, in some cases until the last 24 hours. Well, that had profound implications because let's take the airborne assault on Hostomel to create an air bridge and rapidly introduce forces into the Ukrainian capital. The airborne troops found out about 72 hours before uh, about the operation. But the ground troops that were supposed to link up with them to reinforce them, to allow them to hold that airport, only found out within 24 hours. So you can imagine the complete lack of psychological material preparation. Troops, when they're deploying on exercise, behave one way. Troops that think they're going to war for a prolonged campaign behave another way. And the logistics and the other key components of the effort are organized for the war. Troops that don't think they're going to war and be doing all sorts of things differently and their expectations are going to be quite different, right? So surely enough, 
the Eastern military district couldn't break through. And keep in mind, the assumption was that they would need significant Ukrainian resistance. Well, that was immediately proven wrong. So the Russian airborne couldn't hold the airport and so on and so forth. Ukrainians counterattacked and drove them off. Uh, but this played itself out across uh, the battle space in, in these three different fronts. Russian forces were not advancing as an attacking combined arms formation. The Air Force were providing close air support, but was not conducting any kind of, um, let's say, genuine campaign to suppress Ukrainian air defense or destroy its command and control and so on and so forth across the country. Russian forces were driving into Ukraine as though they were still in Russia, along roads. And they were pushing detachments rapidly to seize key junctions, towns, bridges, and the like, critical infrastructure, because they were told their job was to do this, to avoid major engagement with Ukrainians, not to try to take big cities, to isolate sectors, and the Ukrainian military was going to surrender, and they would, they would then proceed to disarm the Ukrainian military. Now, this may sound nuts to the, to the average observer or listener, and I appreciate that, but this genuinely was the Russian conception of how this was going to go and what they told the troops. So, of course, not only is the Russian military not organized to prosecute a campaign that way, I don't know any military that is, to be perfectly honest. That is not a combined arms operation driving down roads. Unsurprisingly, within a short number of days, troops were out of fuel because no logistics train is supposed to keep up with that kind of advance or operation. Troops were out of food because they were probably not properly supplied for the operation, again, if they thought they were on exercise, and if they weren't advancing solely. You know, in the military, there's a sense of what the rate of advance, how many kilometers per day you might advance in a war. And logistics are kind of organized around that conceptually, right, in some ways. So if you suddenly shift the military to rapidly driving down roads and spread out units, that becomes a very different situation from what a lot of folks actually plan and organize around. Um, and in general, of course, you saw poor integration. A lot of things weren't coordinated. A lot of things, when I talk about integration, things like air power, for example, with, with the, the land campaign. And part of that not, doesn't just stem from, you know, these, these tremendous planning assumptions and the construct operation of the operation. They also plan from a stem from the fact that the Russian military, in this execution, couldn't take things they've done in some exercises or in smaller wars, smaller scale engagements, and scale them. And this is very significant. I think this is a point I would like to, if, any, if you have a takeaway from this conversation, is that many militaries can do things on small scale, a few battalions here, a small operation there. And when we're talking about the scale of 200,000 troops, 130 battalion tactical groups along three fronts, the only military you've really seen attempt this in the last 30 years is the United States military with coalition allies. The Russian military has not attempted anything like this since the collapse of the Soviet Union, and arguably during the Soviet Union, not since the 1968 invasion of Czechoslovakia. So you can imagine lack of experience, right? and the inability to scale, to take these things and actually implement them and coordinate them. And that's a tremendous challenge. The things that you can support logistically as a small force, you can't mm. support logistically on this kind of advance, on the scale, along this many fronts. And so that's the reality that you see that the Russian military couldn't scale. And I'll say honestly, that's one thing, of course, we didn't know. And the only reason why is in military analysis, there's little empiricism. You need a case, right? How would you know that the other side's military can't scale? How would you know that China, for example, can't conduct a large-scale invasion of Taiwan? 
couldn't pull it off, right? Okay. You have to assume that somebody can. This really matters. And I think there's a huge amount to unpick here. So we're going to get a bit more, it's going to get a bit more complicated. Um, so the first thing is, yes, you're saying poor planning to start with, and that accounts for the, 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 the actual um, operation, the aim of the operation, and then simply, um, you know, how that was structured in terms of telling the troops what to do and what elements of the military are going to do what, being that plan gone to shot. Um, but then you also suggest, and there's been a lot of commentary and I don't know how much of it is useful and how much isn't, and I want to answer that. Um, in actual fact, this is um, designed, this is built into the system. Um, there have been fantastic Twitter feeds on tyre pressure, how you look after tyres and tyre stocks, you know, former Soviet Union tyres being used, and so vehicles breaking down on the road. There's even Twitter feeds on pallets, on how pallets are loaded onto, onto trucks. So a question there about whether Russian logistics work properly. Um, and the, the, the question, the, the implication there is that there's so much going wrong that they're never going to succeed. And I know that's something you disagree with, but at the same time, you do point to fundamental weaknesses within the Russian military, and particularly when it comes to manpower. So what I want to do is perhaps take one example. Can you take an example of a BMP, so a Russian military, an infantry fighting vehicle, and what's wrong with the Russian manning level? Because I think this says a lot. Sure. And, and, but I appreciate your comments, but, but I would tell people, be very careful with Twitter threads, okay? There's a lot of people yeah. writing on Twitter who provide no evidence and who are generalizing from anecdotes, okay? And while there are all sorts of maintenance and supply issues in the Russian military, right, this war is not being decided by the age of the tires on one particular truck, okay? Nor is it decided by the fact of whether or not there are forklifts helping move pallets as opposed to boxes with Russian ammo, okay? Uh, that wasn't the case, by the way, during the Cold War, and nobody was saying, you know what, I don't think the Soviet Union and the Warship Pact are a problem because they don't have slightly updated logistics. So I just want to be clear about that up front. They're just not to think at least this way about the challenge. But let's talk about manpower. So in some ways, you have clear failures of performance in the Russian military. But in other ways, what you have is a catastrophic success because the force is designed around a certain type of war and is designed to fight in certain type of ways. And all militaries make these big choices about force structure, about readiness, about manning levels. They have assumptions. And, and these are inherent in, in their approach and their military strategy. And then they come to, a fore, to the fore in the conflict, right? The choices you've made. And so the Russian military has two big issues, and they're interrelated. The first one is they're trying to fight the war at peacetime strength, that is peacetime manning levels. This is a tiered readiness military, all right? And the partial mobilization military, that is, it was designed to be able to rapidly generate a percentage of its combat power, let's say something up to 160 or 170 battalion tactical groups at most, two per regiment or brigade. Battalion tactical groups are kind of task organized formations you can imagine on average there are maybe 600, 700 personnel. And, and Mike, am I right? This goes back really to the, the Cold War, the idea of having a, a huge mammoth um, conflict with the West and being able to do not, not keeping a huge military there all the time, but able to scale it up very quickly. Yeah, so the Russian military wanted to develop a flexible force. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to both have a force that wasn't like the Soviet military, something that could very quickly generate uh, military potential and ground fighting power, right? combat credible fighting power. 
But then they looked at the NATO fight, as they always do, right? The potential for war in Europe. And they also wanted a larger force structure, right? And how can you get a larger force structure without paying for it? Well, you have lower readiness and you have partial mobilization. So you assume that in the event of a larger crisis with NATO, you'll have some months to raise manning levels. So most Russian units are staffed somewhere between 90 and 70%, okay? That means that in a whole host of units, they can produce two battalion tactical groups, but the people aren't there to produce the rest of the formation. They would have to get that manpower, right? So what, what does that, because that's the critical thing, isn't it? So as an, in a really, very real example, what does, that, what does that mean for that fighting vehicle? So let's get down to what's actually happening in Russian ground force. Folks have said, well, they're not doing combined arms well, that it's artillery, infantry, armor working together. That's probably true. But one thing you really see is that they may have structural choice to cut the amount of infantry they have which really has effects on their performance in this war. And they had all sorts of reasons for why they did it, and they reduced the size of the infantry and motor rifle battalions. So when you get down to the battalion tactical group, right, and what's in it, you quickly find out that with both tiered readiness, that is only a percentage of forces available, and then a third of those forces being conscripts, so they're not really being deployable, and what's in this kind of 600, 700-man battalion tactical group, is only a few hundred infantry, and most of them are the crews of the vehicles. So inside of the infantry fighting vehicle, there's almost no infantry to dismount. There are maybe two soldiers, maybe three at most in it. Typically, you would expect to have eight people, three are crew, five are dismounts, right? But you're looking at Russian infantry fighting vehicles with two or zero soldiers in them at all. Right. That, no that means they're tremendously exposed. And if you go into a more um, into some contact or into conflict where you're faced with people with, you know, whether it's you know, anti-tank guided missiles or whatever, you're in a very difficult, you can't actually defend that vehicle so easily. Yeah, well, it's hard, to, for example, to support armor without infantry. Armor and infantry have to work together. If you have no dismounted infantry, you have real issues. Ukrainians are using small squad tactics with ambushes. They're leveraging urban terrain very effectively. And you're also going to have a big challenge holding lines. The Russian military thought about warfare in a particular way. They assumed a fragmented battlefield, highly maneuverable formation, emphasizing fire and strike and means of reconnaissance. And they didn't think they'd need much infantry. Those didn't actually didn't actually plan around strategic ground defensives. They thought this was, you know, a bygone era of the Cold War, strategic ground mm -hmm. defensives in Europe. And so if you look at these formations, you got a lot of tanks, you got a lot of artillery means of reconnaissance, electronic warfare. But then you get down to the meat of it, where's the infantry? There's very little. And guess what? That's going to really affect your ability to fight in cities. You can't fight in cities without infantry. Um, right. That's just the reality of it. Um, you can't support your vehicles. You can't support your, your, your armor without infant dismounted infantry, too. There's a lot of tasks for which you need infantry, and the Russian military genuinely lacks it. So in that first phase of the war, you saw huge ambition, poor planning, um, and an enormous risk-taking. And that risk-taking um, cost them a huge amount in terms of lost armor and you know, th thousands of, of Russian lives. But in this second phase, you're saying now they're no longer taking those risks. And we shouldn't underestimate the Russian military, nevertheless. Yeah, absolutely. So they're trying to prosecute this in a more coherent, organized way. But it's very ponderous for a number of reasons. They don't have the military advantage in terms of forces nearly as much as they would have if they had prosecuted this, as if, if this was their first phase, right? 
So, so they've actually been, they have lost a substantial amount. So they, they have actually been tremendously weakened by this first phase. Yeah, because folks have to appreciate, I think, two things. In terms of material, they've lost about 15 to 20% of the active tank and heavy uh, armored fighting vehicle fleet, those things like infantry fighting vehicles. But that's not the biggest uh, problem that the Russian military has. Since they're still trying to fight this without declaring it a war, they don't have access to much of their manning. That means they can't rotate forces back around, they can't replenish as well, they can't use conscripts very much, so on and so forth. So they have to fight what they've left. Well, if you know how casualties work, you often have two and a half to three wounded and missing for every soldier killed on the battlefield. So if the Russian casualties, I don't know, let's say just throwing a dart at the board, are somewhere seven to 10,000 or something like that, and you multiply it out, you quickly realize that that is a lot of battalions that are likely combat ineffective or are essentially fighting as fragments with much lower cohesion and morale. So the Russian military is visibly not prosecuting this offensive with much enthusiasm. As units take casualties, the motivation and morale goes down. And if you started with low morale to begin with, as I described, right, you didn't start the campaign actually with strong, you weren't psychologically prepared for it, you can see the challenges you're going to have. And without solving this manning problem, declaring a state of war, enacting hmm. some piecemeal mobilization, which they are actually trying to hire people rapidly behind the scenes. I can get into that too. Okay. This is that likely... I'm sorry. Joe, you got to go. I say this offensive is probably the last offensive they can do with the forces they have available. Because the Russian military isn't going to suddenly be defeated or melt away, but their offensive potential is going to be exhausted in this fight. Kind of independent almost of what happens in it, whether they gain ground or not successful, just the rate of attrition and the losses are such, it's going to exhaust the offensive potential of that force for some time. Okay, I'm gonna come back to that thought in just a second, because there are major political implications and also um, for how long the war could be protracted for. If you do go down that route of saying, right, we need mobilization society, Russia is at war, and the whole of society has to has to take on that thinking. Let, let's put that to one side for the moment. But what's the situation for the Ukrainians? We know that they are um, the, the, the will to fight this war is extraordinary. And we know they've got a lot of people who've, who've um, sort of, you know, joined, joined the fight, ready to joining small units. But how, how badly have they, effect, have they been affected and is that sustainable? So it's true that, you know, the intangibles, things like morale, are definitely on the Ukrainian side of the conflict. The uh, Ukrainian military is highly motivated and there's a general sense the Ukrainians are winning. Um, the military balance is over time shifting in Ukraine's favor for two reasons. They've mobilized a considerable amount of manpower. So Ukraine actually banned men ages 18 to 60 from leaving the country and mm -hmm. mobilized them. If you're a man in Ukraine, you know, to some extent, you have to support the war. You may not have to fight, but you have to support. You actually technically can't leave. And so they have a tremendous amount of manpower. They can replace losses. And with Western military support by getting conventional equipment, things like artillery. And artillery has been the most decisive thing on this battlefield. I hate to ruin the story for colleagues who are technology fetishists and see all these TikTok videos of advanced anti-tank missiles and drones. But the thing that's doing the most work on this battlefield has been artillery. Old-fashioned artillery married with more modern commercial means of drone reconnaissance and the like. But nonetheless, 
tube artillery, multiple launch rocket systems, the kind of things I think people have been familiar with uh, the conflict and memorial. So now that they can generate additional units and they have Western equipment, things like artillery, infantry fighting vehicles, tanks, they can turn that into combat fighting power, additional reserve brigades. And that will allow them to both over time, potentially deplete Russian forces and retake some territory. But I don't wanna paint this as a very one-sided story. Ukrainian mm. forces have also had considerable losses. And we don't actually know the extent of Ukrainian losses. They also have attrition to their equipment, and we don't know the full extent of that either. I mean, we have to just have to be honest about uh, how much the fog of war persists. I have to be frank about that. These are estimates based on limited information about both sides. And, you know, the Ukrainian potential for combined arms offenses is also yet to be revealed. They've retaken territory where Russian forces retreated and ceded it, where they were sparse. But significant fights in this war may yet be here to come. I mean, still to come. Mm. And the Russian military has considerable staying power. So for all their challenges, there's a couple things we haven't seen. We haven't seen any routes, and we haven't seen any significant surrenders. Okay. So whatever challenges they're having in morale logistics, they have clear staying power in the battlefield. And Russian political leadership obviously can change the parameters of this war. They can call out more manpower. They can declare this an actual war, which will enact what we call kind of stop-loss policies. That is, they'll stop conscript rotations. Soldiers who are contract servicemen won't be able to just leave, tear up their contracts. Believe it or not, Russian servicemen can, if they want to, actually refuse to fight. They can tear up their contract. And I mean, there are penalties, don't, don't, mm. don't get me wrong. It's not easy to do, but they can do it. And so there's all these challenges that the Russian military is having, given how the war is framed. But those mm. are political decisions that could change. Okay, let, let's come on to that, that in just a second. Um, let's let's get your questions, everyone, please. If you can put your questions in the Q&A box, um, it may be below on your screen if you're watching on a laptop, and we'll come to you in a, in a, in a few minutes' time. But let's let's just um, stay with that thought about mobilization and as a political intent. Um, just just to start with, we're not expecting any major breakthroughs um, on for both sides for for different reasons. So you've got a, a slow moving war with not, you know nothing enormously unexpected, at least as that's what we think. Um, but coming with that, that idea about Ru Russian mobilization, you talk about Russia as being an immensely procedural um, society. You know, bureaucracy has been there for a very, very long period of time. Um, and you talk about, so once somebody is conscripted, it happens through the bureaucracy and you've got certain rights and it has to work with that. But when you declare war, that, that changes. But Putin hasn't gone to that point and there's a sort of a halfway house. So you can explain how that's working and how that might play out. But then also, are you surprised by how much Russia has got behind this war? Apart from the Russian population, I mean. Sure. Um, so first, I, I will say this, that Russian leadership is often the, the masters are often the masters of halfway measures. Right. And and so you can see them to try to find trying to find a halfway approach between declaring national mobilization, which they don't want to do, and declaring a state of war, which they also don't want to do. Although I suspect that they will be forced to either do that or to change the current laws on the book, because um, Russia is a country where there's no rule of law, but there is absurd proceduralism and, and a, a, a sort of absolutist approach to following procedure. 
And so, yes, the political leadership can change whatever they want, right? Whenever they want it, but they do have to actually do it. They have to change the procedures. They can't just say, conscripts, we're going to send you in, or we're going to do mobilization without declaring a state of war. What they're trying to do behind the scenes right now gives us some evidence of how much they're avoiding these decisions. They are offering short-term service contracts for people to enlist in the military, probably with prior experience in veterancy, as short as perhaps four months, for a lot of money. They're putting a lot of uh, rubles down on the barrelhead to Mm. see if they can raise manning levels behind the scenes and replenish their losses. So it's clear they're trying to solve the manning problem without making the political decisions. And that takes time, doesn't it? It's not something that's going to happen in, in weeks. No, it does take time. It does take time. But it will, it will have an effect because they may, over time, if they're successful, although I suspect they won't be, I suspect they will be put to harder choices the way this war is going, could create enough forces to be able to rotate troops off the battlefield. right? Because one of the biggest challenges is you need a force to fight a war, and you need another force back home to be able to replace units on the line. Right. So if you generate most of your combat power potential, expecting to only be fighting for a couple of days or weeks, and you send it all into the, the battle space, into the area of operations, you have nobody to, to rotate with. There's nobody left back home to replace them. And when units get knocked out, you've basically lost the combat effectiveness of that unit. And there's nobody to take their place. So that's a challenge the Russian Russian. Uh, military will have to solve. We've got some questions coming in now, so let's uh, let, let's go to them. Um, I'm going to take one from uh, Elaine Moore first, and then we'll go to Tim Ripley. So go ahead, Elaine. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. This is an area about which I know absolutely nothing. So um, we've heard about people volunteering from all sorts of parts of the world to go and fight in Ukraine. Are there any groups... Um, who are willing to fight in Russia, I mean, for Russia, for ideological reasons rather than money? Good question. Yeah, so there there are always fighters to be found who are actually interested in this project, either because they're nationalists, because... Uh, they support the notion of Russian imperialism and have been from the very beginning. In fact, that's in part how the fighting started in 2014. It was a Russian effort, but there are plenty of people involved who were ideological volunteers. And they were actually backed even by individuals in Russia, oligarchs with money, who were ideologically motivated themselves as well. Uh, at least that's what the effort looked like at the very beginning of 2014. That's not as much the case now. I think the important point here is that Although the Russian political leadership is suffering a strategic defeat, if we kind of look at big picture, what their objectives were relative to what happened in the first phase, they have managed to generate considerable support for the war at home. So it's somewhat of a paradox that Russia has a substantial amount of political support, and the extent of which I don't think we can fairly measure. And that's an honest caveat. We don't know how deep it runs, I think. But it's, it's fair to say it's substantial for a war that they're losing, right? And and that political support, at least as long as it lasts, so we'll see if it's durable, we'll see to what extent it's really there, that political support probably gives the regime uh, some confidence that they can sustain this conflict. And it became, it became a lot more apparent after the first two weeks. 
that there was political support being generated by the Russian system. And that was because when they first launched the war, they surprised their own state media. They surprised all the people that were supposed to mobilize the public. They didn't know about it, but they quickly adjusted and swung into action. And within a couple of weeks, they had branded the war, started to generate support for it. And you started to see, at least in, in regions and other areas, some percentage mm. of Russians actually backing this conflict, uh, probably not having a, a, at all an accurate understanding of what's really happening on the battlefield. Do, do you know what? I'm amazed. I had a conversation yesterday with a Russian friend. She's got family here in the UK. She lives in the UK, but she watches Russia Today a lot and various other Russian channels, completely behind Putin. Um, and um, despite all the knowledge that she's aware from, from from Western media, and I often think of Iran after the uh, revolution in 1979, you had an insecure regime, then you had the Iran-Iraq war, and that really was a boon for the Islamic regime. Regime. It, it sort of built up a sense of nationalism and actually gave them some sense of security. So it's um, you know, uh, war can be a national project. Uh, let's let's take a question from Tim Ripley. Go ahead, Tim. Tim, oh, are we on? Are we on there? Yes. Yeah. All right. Right. Um, good to see you. Um, myself and Nick have had several conversations about um the start of the war and all the war planning and how it all um, unfolded. And um, he owes me uh, at least a hundred quid or a very good meal in the pub. Cause I got it right. He got okay. it wrong. Okay. Yeah. But the, th the reason why I was, I, I, I thought the war wasn't going to happen <laughs> was because first of all, they didn't have enough troops. They didn't work organized properly. They didn't train properly before the war. And you've sort of alluded to that kind of stuff. So what's your take on what was this troop build up? really a preparation for war or did it just get out of control was it was it a, was it a, a was it escalated against the advice of the professional military was it a putin plot how do you see that happening so just for those who don't know tim writes for jane's defense and has authored authorized authored numerous books uh, on um defense including a book called little green men which is about little Indeed. green men michael gunn all right well Tim, don't feel bad about getting the war wrong. Most people did, okay, for all sorts of reasons. You, at least if you got it wrong, you got it wrong for the right reasons. That is, you had an honest assessment of what you saw in the Russian military, and you didn't believe that this was a credible invasion force. I was one of the people that was arguing that this invasion was going to take place and that the objectives would be maximals. That said, um, I'm afraid you're probably still going to end up owing Nick uh, that meal because it was not an escalation game or a bluff that got out of hand. It was pretty clearly a prepared military operation. It wasn't just a Putin plot, but it was an operation that once again highlights the supremacy of the political in making these kinds of decisions and in making plans for war. And one of the big things those military analysts we can get wrong is we mirror image our profession into the decision-making of people that don't know very much about military matters, never came out of our community, and couldn't care less about half the things we're actually interested in that to us are significant deterministic. And those are the people that make decisions on war. And that's why causes of war literature teaches you something very different from what the defense planning and the local community usually learns, things like military advantage, the kind of forces you would need. And Russia's far from the first country I've seen make this mistake. I'll be honest, I've seen my own country make mistakes like this. So 
Um, if we look at the Russian force structure and the buildup to the war, yes, it is fair to say that to many people it looked insufficient. However, it is wrong in my, in my view to conclude that the outcome of this war that started was somehow overdetermined. Actually, much was contingent. If this force structure was employed in a phased offensive, and if it was an organized operation, an extent of organization or not was kind of hard to tell, to be honest, preparation. There's a whole bunch of things I think we're all wrong on. I was wrong on the actual concept of operations, because I too thought that the Russian leadership was suffering from immense war optimism, which is why the war is actually very likely. Because not having enough troops has really stopped countries and political leaders from launching wars. If it did, we'd never have a war where the weaker side attacked the stronger side. But we get those wars all the time, right? So if objective military analysis drove causes of war, you wouldn't see a lot of the conflicts you see. Right, Tim, there's your answer. You still owe me money. Um, I'm going to pick, pick on the smaller questions first and then go to the, some of the bigger ones. Glenn Gill, you've got a question about convoys. Go ahead, Glenn. I'm interested in the what we might know about the Ukrainian tactics. Very early on, we saw massive convoys of Russian vehicles effectively in traffic jams, halted, stalled. Um, the Ukrainians could have destroyed the lot of them, I would have imagined, rather like the Americans did in Iraq. But instead, they let them sit there. Um, so my question is, why? Was this a psychological ploy to try and humiliate the Russian troops? Or was it for fear of escalating retaliation by the Russians, mm. or what do you think? Yeah, Michael, is the answer they were stuck and going nowhere? So there actually wasn't really much of, of this happening, although early on they were trying to push a lot of forces into Ukraine, and they were kind of creating their own traffic jams. But the truth is that Ukrainians themselves were scrambling at the beginning of this war to mobilize, to fill out units, and to organize the defense. And they were making hard trade-off choices. This war actually has very different campaigns depending on where you look. In the north around Kiev is where the Ukrainians concentrated their defense, but they pulled a lot from forces elsewhere, depleting them. And in the south, it almost looked like a rout as the southern military district invaded, and Ukrainian forces were trying to retreat as fast as they could out of Kherson. And they took a lot of losses there. So this war actually plays out differently depending on what part of the country you look at in the early days. North of Kiev, where the supposed 40-mile convoy was that was stuck, was in practice just a lot of Russian forces, and they were trapped trying to move down the road because, again, they were going to drive in and take the city within a few days. And Ukrainians blew the bridges and then flooded the area north of Irpin, right? So they created a giant floodplain. The Russians were essentially using that as a mobile logistics base, hopping logistics from Belarus through all those trucks you saw on the road, to supply units further south. At the end of the day, there was no 40-mile stock convoy. And you know how we know, is because when the Russian military decided to retreat, within a few days, they turn around and withdraw their vehicles. And no 40-mile stock convoy was found by the Ukrainians. Right? So it tells us that, that the situation, as it was being described in the media, probably wasn't entirely accurate. This is what we call input-output problems and analysis where the output, the results, suggest that something was wrong with the inputs into the conversation. So it was never as long as 40 miles? 
It was, um, well, it was yeah. It was clearly never stuck, as people suggested it, and it was clearly not as long as forty miles. So, uh, uh, uh. okay. Here's a, here's a really good question coming from Carlos Tabizes. Uh, are you there, Carlos? Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Uh, just curious about the role of air power. I mean, it, it seems to have been um, secondary. There seemed to have been relatively little use of attack aircraft and a relatively little battle for air supremacy. Is that right, uh, firstly? And secondly, will that, is that likely to change in future? Great question. Okay. Um, not entirely. So the Russian Air Force, just like the military, originally didn't plan for a prolonged campaign. They thought some strikes and some suppression of Ukrainian air defense to attain local air security would do. This is, of course, a challenge for them. They're actually not uh, that well prepared or trained for some of these missions. And in many ways, it's a pretty dated Air Force when we look at capability, maybe more like an early 90s Air Force. It's certainly a generation behind the West, if not more. So Air, Force hasn't, air Power hasn't been as big a factor because both sides have substantial amount of air defense. And Russian Air Force has struggled against Ukrainian air defense. A lot of folks don't know that Ukraine had quite a bit of air defense tiered, radar guided, and we gave them a lot of short range manned portable systems. And the Russian military had largely been using air defense as well of its own. Ukraine's air force was very small, not very operational. They had a bunch of losses. Yes, they're still flying, but they've not had a meaningful impact on the battlefield besides the Turkish TB2 drones. The Russian Air Force has struggled because it can't do close air support missions very well. And when they try to, they mostly use helicopters. And when they do that, then they have to run into short range air defense, right? They become very vulnerable. So the Russian Air Force has not been the force multiplier I think many of us expected. But in retrospect, I'll close out that conversation on this point, if you look at their campaign plan, and you sort of, you always have to ask as an analyst, this is what they've done, but compared to what? Well, if a Western military was doing it, probably they try to pursue air superiority. But Ukraine's the second largest country in Europe with a lot of air defense. So do you know how long you have been pursuing air superiority for before you felt like you established it to be able to securely support ground troops? Months, months. And the Russian Air Force, if they had attempted to do it this way, with their limitations, would have taken much longer and probably would have lost a substantial percentage of the fixed-wing aircraft they had assigned to this operation, too. So I can sort of, from a local perspective, understand why they were trying to do what they could, given their limitations, and given what they were trying to achieve in the campaign, which is an easy and quick victory, rather than sitting back for months trying to achieve air superiority over what is the largest country in Europe outside of Russia. I, I think we're learning a huge amount here. Um, so it's a steep learning curve for, for all of us. Um, I'll come to a question now from Peter Sullivan, which is, I think is a critical one. Um, we've talked about this as being a war of attrition. Um, I've had a, 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 some experience of conflict. There's nothing worse than sitting in a trench being shelled by artillery. It's the worst thing in, you, you can possibly experience, one of the worst things I think you could experience in your life. Um, Peter, your question, please. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you. It's been very interesting. And um, gee, there's a very old picture of me just come up. But mm. <laughs> I was wondering whether... I could, whether the artillery that you're talking about, because earlier you said the wars being won or being fought with artillery, are you talking about big guns or are you talking about missiles? Missiles are 
well, both are expensive, but mm. missiles are very difficult to replace, whereas so, artillery is this comes down to the, I mean, with the obviously being quite a bit of focus on, on missiles hitting strategic targets, but you, your focus, basically the actual, on the front, that's sort of front lines, it's the, the importance of the artillery can't be understated. Could you talk about the balance of those two things? Yeah. So at the tactical level, it's really tube artillery and multiple launch rocket systems, right? Um, at the more operational level, the Russian military has been using long-range cruise missiles, ballistic missiles of various types to try to take out Ukrainian critical infrastructure. And they've been working the sustainment aspect of Ukraine's war effort, taking out ammunition, fuel depots, trying to degrade now the rail network, ground lines of communication and the like, with mixed results, some effect, but again, these are the sort of things the United States was really doing starting in the 91 Gulf War. And the Russian military for the first time is trying to do at scale large employment of cruise missiles and long range precision guy weapons. It's many decades since, and they're learning a lot about their weapons, about what they can do, but it's clear that they have a lot of issues in targeting. The Russian military isn't that good at dynamic targeting those. They can fit, hit fixed buildings, but they can't seem to do more dynamic targeting in the battlefield. So the long story short is the decisive uh, capability in the battlefield has been artillery and it has been uh, rocket systems and mortars as well. Uh, married with modern sensors and drones, the main big difference of the modern battlefield is you have the systems of the old but when you merge them with modern sensors that any soldier can use and employ, even commercial systems, you have a degree of lethality and accuracy you just didn't have before, right? The destructive power is multiplied, right? And you can now have effects that you just couldn't necessarily have uh, uh, during, during earlier periods. Because there's nothing new about artillery, obviously. Um, you just become much more effective. But it creates a huge logistical challenge for both sides because artillery armies and Russian military fundamentally is an artillery army with a lot of tanks. A lot of people think it's a tank army. That's the way it's depicted in popular media, but it isn't. Historically and culturally, it's always been an artillery army. Right? Artillery armies are very ammunition hungry. And that means they need a lot of logistics. And that's one of the challenges the Russian military has had and the Ukrainian military has had too. Russian military didn't plan for large war like this, didn't have the logistics organized for it. The Ukraine military simply didn't have the ammunition, period. That's where Western military support came in, or at least coming in, in giving them artillery systems and ammo. Okay. And very briefly, Michael, do you, do you think there are that, um, that, that the Ukrainians have got enough of that uh, in, in the short term, enough enough to hold their lines? I mean, you, you suggested yes. I, I honestly don't know. I don't know where the balance stands between what they have available, the new artillery systems that we've given. We, I've just started to see them on the line, M777s, yeah. for example, the um, towed howitzers. We've given them an incredible amount of ammunition for them, but they're only just showing up on the battlefield. So right. that, it's going to take time for that to be uh, a military capability that's available in enough, in, in enough quantity to make the difference. Yeah, and presumably with the Russians being closer to their own border for the moment, it's that those supplies 
the supply lines are relatively yeah. secure. So, sort of, um, you know, um, even there. Let, let's go to Dan Cook because here's a question really about um, that, that sort of goes up the higher echelons, uh, which is an important one. Go ahead, Diane, if you're there. Um, yeah, Michael, you said quite a while ago at the beginning um, that there was a failure of conception from the start. Uh, and with some of the other things you said, it, it seems like that's continuing with, you know, the thing about whether whether to mobilise, call it a war, whatever. Um, how do you think that, what sort of response do you think that will likely bring about in the high command in Moscow, in the army? Will they be fed up with that lack of direction, if that's the correct word for it? So the high command is responsible for this at the end of the day. I mean, they either agreed or were forced to agree to this operation, but they promised naturally that they could make it happen. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. So since then, it was clear a few weeks into the war that they were pursuing completely unfeasible political objectives, that that military strategy made no sense given the force they had available, and they got a big adjustment. Now the question remains, what is the interaction between the senior military leadership and the political leadership? Does the political leadership really understand what their prospects are for success on the battlefield? Often you get one of two effects. The military is not necessarily very honest about the state of things on the battlefield and won't disclose that they, they're actually quite pessimistic or perhaps the, the real state of the force. You can also get another effect where the military is quite frank and honest, but the political leadership won't listen to them. And that can happen in particular in a personalist authoritarian system. The political leadership believes that certain things are going to happen no matter what. They're committed to the course, and they won't be swayed from it. And I'm sure if you followed uh, at least Russia under Vladimir Putin, maybe perhaps... Uh, uh, or the time I have as well, he's very emotional and very attached to the notion of Ukraine and bringing Ukraine back into Russia's sphere of influence, and even more importantly, restoring Russian control over historic Russian lands that he believes were stolen in the creation of Ukraine. If you read, if you read his articles and read his speeches, he's pretty consistent. He's incredibly consistent with himself. It doesn't leave a lot of daylight for interpretation as to what his aims are. And he looks pretty attached to him, and I see no evidence of him changing course, to be perfectly honest. So maybe the military is telling them in the high command that this is growing unrealistic, and he's just not accepting it. And we've seen that right. in history, too. M Michael, his, he's written, and well, I mean, his, the people he um, sort of supports have written about in Moldova is included in that. So Belarus has been brought into the fold of Lukashenko. Um, uh, you know, there, there's the plan for Ukraine, and then there's um, the re references also to Moldova being brought back, and the FSB doing a lot of work to try and uh, ensure that happened and failing. Um, what what kind of victory do you think can Putin afford to present to his own public? And that that's a, a critical question. We know that Ukraine says it, it wants to get back to where they were on March the 24th. That would be a, a settlement that it would be, it could, could just, could deal with. But what do you think is possible? What could Putin accept? Hmm. Well, I don't think he could accept that. 
I think these are right now completely irreconcilable positions. So I suspect that his aim will be to capture as much of the Donbass as he can and then annex it and also take permanent control of the southern regions, Kherson, Zaporizhia, along the coast and uh, turn them either into republics or annex them as well. That's my suspicion. I obviously don't know what he intends to do. And I often say, anybody who tells you they know what, what Putin is thinking is probably trying to sell you something. All right? So I don't. But I suspect that that is the bare minimum and that aspirationally they would also still like to take the Western coast, Nikolaev and Odessa, and create a, a contiguous territory under Russian control all the way to Moldova. They don't have the forces to do that. They tried in the first phase of the war and were defeated in the Southwest as well. So it's kind of a pipe dream. But it's very clear what their ambition might be if they're at all successful in the Donbass. So I think that's where we are right now. I'll say this, as long as it's a special operation, he still has considerable flexibility in how to define victory and sell it. If he does declare us to be a war, and I think that's why he doesn't want to do it, then he's going to mobilize the population. That's what wars do when you declare them. And then he's going to have to promise something more maximalist, right? Like a capitulation of the Ukrainian leadership. It can't just be for a bunch of towns in the Donbass that most Russians have never heard of. If you think Russians are more familiar with the territory of the Donbass than you, that might, might, might be a mistaken assumption, okay? Many Russians have never heard of any of these towns and cities either. But Odessa would be different. Odessa would be quite different, yes. Mm. That's right. But, but at the moment, that's more than a bridge too far. That's right. But most folks have never heard of Azum or Severodonetsk or, you know, Papasna, which was just captured. I mean, yeah. I'll be honest, Michael, we got I'm originally from Ukraine, and I haven't heard of some of these towns. Yeah, My Michael, I was going to say, I mean, I wanted to um, come to you and your own background. How did you get into all of this? I mean, because you've got a depth of understanding of, of, of mentalities as well um, and um, through personal experience. So tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, well, I don't think there's much to tell. I'm originally from the Soviet Union. I was born in, in uh, Kiev, Ukraine, came to the United States in the early 90s, and um, mostly finished my education professional development here. And uh, I'm actually working in the field that I studied in, believe it or not, which was uh, uh, international security and heavy focus on things like military analysis. And I spent most of my time either in the Department of Defense or in research organizations that are directly adjacent to this kind mm. of work. And right now I, I lead the Russia Studies Program at a defense research organization, which is what the Center for Naval Analysis is. Uh, and I focus a lot of my time on uh, combining sort of functional knowledge, defense military analysis, together with regional specialization expertise. You know, if you wanna follow things like the Russian military or follow this war, well, it helps to know something about Russia. It helps to speak Russian. It helps to understand the culture and its history. Um, and it helps to have years of sort of having spent uh, on this area. So 
And I've tried to leverage those advantages with, you know, at least some functional knowledge and things I've developed over years of study and work in the defense establishment. We've just got a few minutes left. and I want to sort of um, wrap up with questions really about possible escalation. Um, so one, I've, Simon Jackson's got a question related to this. We'll come to Simon in just a second. What, how is it at the moment that the conflict is restrained within the borders of Ukraine officially? We're seeing the odd fuel depot go up in smoke in Russia. What are the chances of the, of the conflict escalating? And then we've got, I'll take that question now also from Simon Jackson. Go ahead, Simon. Um, you haven't mentioned uh, Putin's refusal to rule out the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Is this something, how, how seriously should we be quaking about that? Okay, those two questions, Michael. Okay, so on escalation, I'm not that concerned of it, concerned with it resulting from Ukrainian strikes in Russia. Uh, it's not clear how much this conflict could escalate any further. It's not really a conflict. It's a serious conventional war in Europe. You know, the, my, my intellectual approach to the question of escalation is twofold. And, and, I'll, and I'll wrap in uh, the second question as well. First, I think it's clear if the Russian military really is losing and losing in a way that looks like it's going to become catastrophic, Putin's very likely going to declare something that will allow him to mobilize more manpower. Okay, because I just don't think he's going to accept defeat, and that'll be his only option. And it's an option he's withholding until the military is in more dire straits. On the nuclear side equation, well, first, why would Putin ever rule out use of tactical nuclear weapons? What leader rules out use of nuclear weapons if they happen? Like you just ran, you're just going to give away the threat of escalation and the course of effect of something for nothing? Nobody does that. We don't do that necessarily. Um, the presence of nuclear weapons always means that the conflict is fought in that sort of nuclear shadow. And one thing you have to keep in mind is that paradoxically, it is the losing side in the war that typically determines when it ends, right? Because the losing side has to concede the conflict and has to forego escalation options, right? A state that's losing conventionally has to also forego any use of nuclear weapons either on the battlefield or for coercion. I think nuclear use is unlikely. I want to be clear about that. But I also want to tell you that it's about the likeliest I've ever seen in my professional career in this particular episode, which is that it is a more likely improbable event than it has been in the past. And you could see a chain, at least a story that takes you logically to a place where nuclear weapons could be used for demonstration purposes, not killing anyone on the battlefield, but just signaling nuclear escalation and creating that diplomatic shock, and to back nuclear threats, potentially against Ukraine, down the line. Because keep in mind, nobody extends nuclear deterrence to Ukraine. Ukraine is not in NATO. It's not part of any organization or alliance that extends nuclear deterrence or nuclear guarantees to the country. Michael, thank you very much indeed. It's been a, a, a really, really good conversation. It's been an honor to have you here. Um, I'll just stress again that Michael really is one of the leading analysts on this subject, and we're very lucky to have you here for, um, and have all your, your time. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thanks for having me on your program and for the thoughtful discussion.